Welcome back to Creating Christmas. This is part two of our series, Creating the Holiday the World Needed. If you haven't listened to part one, you missed. The early Christians did not have a Christmas. I'd suggest you go back and give that a listen first, or this. The most important and the most long-lasting tradition was that believing Christmases of the past had always been better. Isn't going to make as much sense. We are on our merry way. I had a history teacher assign a weekend project in middle school that I'm still working on now, over 20 years later. I think about it, wrestle with my answer, every week. And I don't like that this question is stuck in my head, because... I know if it's there now, it'll probably always be there. It wasn't so much a project as just a single question. What's the most important invention of all time? I really racked my brain, revising, changing, reworking my answer. Not fire, too obvious. Weaving? What was he looking for? What would he answer? Maybe the toilet. Was this a trick question? What I kind of know now that I could in no way wrap my head around back then was that there is no perfect answer. There is no A-plus response. But at the same time, Only a few guesses could ever really be wrong. Our history is everything that happened at the same time. It can't be whittled down to one thing, and neither can Christmas. Sorting back and trying to find just the one catalyst, we get to this point where there's sort of a societal avalanche, where every segment of the world changes. And when the snow settles, we have Christmas again. Now I'm gonna say something controversial. This Christmas that we're about to encounter, it's new. It's a new holiday. I said it. I did. Some people might say I'm wrong, but just wait. We'll be chilling and having a good, this is Creating good Christmas, time. the holiday the world needed, part two. If you're someone who doesn't think that our Christmas just began in the 19th century, well, you don't have to look too far to prove me wrong. Part one of this series is all about laying out the long history of winter festivals and their conversion to Christmas. So without a doubt, secular and religious holidays, which were called Christmas, existed prior to the 19th century. What I'm getting at though, is that this holiday is about to go 180 degrees away from any version of Christmas that had existed before. Up to this point, Christmas was an adult community celebration where food and especially drinking were the main focus. What we have now though, is a kid and family-based domestic celebration with an emphasis on presents. So here, right at this point, this is when everything changes. Our holiday is about to be forged in the world of industry and maybe all the history that led up to this was just the raw materials. Let's pick up where we left off, around the early to mid 1700s. Christmas wasn't exactly knocked out by the Puritans, but it probably wasn't gonna get into the ring again. I'm Bruce, I'm a professor emeritus of religious studies at Morningside College, although now it's known as Morningside University. For about 150 years, Christmas almost goes away. And I've heard that, but the most striking example, there's a book by uh, two authors and they decided to test this. So they wanted to know how far had Christmas fallen. So they read every December issue of the Times of London from 1790 to 1835. And in that 45 year period, 
in 20 of the years, there's not a single mention of Christmas. Is that stunning? And, and in the others, it's mentioned in passing, like this is something that people used to do. The traditions that have become a part of Christmas didn't just disappear with the holiday. Instead, they sort of shifted around in the season. Presents may have moved to New Year's or earlier in the month to St. Nicholas Day, while winter festivities may have moved to as late as Valentine's. The version of Christmas that did resume later in the 18th and into the 19th century looked a lot like the over-the-top indulgent celebrations of the past. I'm Judith Flanders. I'm a 19th century social historian. I'm the author of several books on Victorian social life, as well as of Christmas A History. The Christmas period was a period then rather than a day. You had this sort of holiday for really until the Industrial Revolution and factories mean that they have to cut down on the holidays. It was really rowdy and it was rowdy well into the 19th century. And you have various kinds of events. You had things in the country called wassailing, where the working people would go house to house with really, you know, the equivalent of a bucket. And they would sing songs and offer, you know, toasts of good health in exchange for a drink or bread and cheese or maybe money, depending on the house they were at. But they were drinking all the way as they went. Even the traditional custom of a door-to-door present bringer, such as St. Nicholas or Belsnickel, returned a bit rougher. Now, their forms and interactions differed from place to place, but in general, they fell somewhere between the religious-based St. Nicholas that visited to check on children's biblical studies and just holiday monsters. Each balanced punishment with presents. And in many situations, the role was played by a beggar or someone of the lower class, dressed in rags with a blackened or dirty face. One urban custom that arose during the same time was Calthumpian bands. Now we've actually managed to recreate one of these bands to authentically represent the sound of the times. This is part of Christmas. And if it's a bit less than pleasing to your ears, you might have something in common with a new class of people that wouldn't set out to cancel Christmas. Actually the opposite. They wanted to change Christmas. This new group of people were the middle class, and there's something that's almost brand new to the time in which we're entering, the Industrial Revolution. A greater change in ways of living than had occurred in all time previously was to take place in an astonishingly brief space of time. The time when the world was changed from what we had into the first draft of the world we now know. So really, what was the Industrial Revolution? Hi, my name is Angela Platt. I am a PhD student at Royal Holloway University of London, uh, currently investigating love in religious families in the 18th and 19th centuries. And I'm also a, an associate lecturer and tutor in the humanities. So in effect, the Industrial Revolution sort of proper in its first iteration began around the mid 18th century and continued until the mid 19th century. And that's where you see sort of this first iteration, the expansion of the economy, agricultural services and transport, growth of factories, mass production. So it became uh, easier and cheaper to make things and to transport them. And also you could transport people from one place to the next very quickly. Okay, that's the Industrial Revolution proper. And when I hear that description, I think smokestacks, assembly lines, old-timey metal forges. But instead, let's look at life. The collateral effects of the Industrial Revolution, the way our understanding of how we live together changed. 
It's amazing to think that fundamental parts of our daily lives now were basically created during this time. Things you may never have even thought had a start date began here. The idea of a home life, kids being kids, even the emotion nostalgia, they all trace back here. Now all these changes not only made our modern Christmas possible, but they also made reimagining the holiday essential. It had to happen because the cornerstones of the celebration from before were sort of gone. Real quick, as we talk about these shifts that took place, I need to underline that this wasn't one sudden overnight change across all people on earth. The industrial revolution and its impact were gradual and didn't affect all of society at once. But by the mid 1800s, it had significantly changed our world. And importantly for us, it changed how we saw our world. An exact order to the changes of society is beyond my grasp. So let's look at it in a way that seems linear. A mass migration, causing home life and work life to split. Families turn inwards, which lets kids be kids. And for the first time, we get to feel like we miss all this. So let's get moving. The beginning of a great movement of rural population to the cities that would eventually change the basic pattern of life. As mass production was happening and factories were erecting and cities were growing, at the same time you have people en masse moving to cities in a way that's quite unprecedented. Not to say that people didn't move to cities before, but they're doing so in a way that's, that's much greater. This migration, if we just look at New York City, it began the 19th century with roughly 60,000 people. By 1830, there were 185,000 people in it, an increase of 208% in 30 years. And by the turn of the 20th century, New York City boasted 3.8 million people. That's a 6,233% increase. To put this in perspective, think about your home. The average block has between seven to 10 homes. So let's say eight homes. If your street had this same increase, before you paid off your mortgage, you'd have 17 more families living on your street. And within 100 years, there'd be roughly 500 families living there. Whatever culture or lifestyle you have on your block right now, I guarantee an influx of over 500 people is gonna change that. And this is exactly what happened. People now live in communities of strangers. That means that they withdraw, they make their homes the primary unit of their non-work life rather than going to the marketplace, the inn, the tavern, as they might have done if they lived in small villages. To build cities, we gave up our long-standing reliance on communities. And the speed in which this growth happened means we didn't have time to carefully weave all these different backgrounds together. In regards to Christmas, a holiday that relied heavily on community celebrations, if you're used to going with sailing, essentially door-to-door -door singing and drinking, how does that look to someone who's never encountered it before? Or to someone you've never met? With that in mind, let's think back on Calthumpian bands. Is this a celebration? Or noise? Or maybe just harassment? At the same time that our idea of community was changing, our idea of family was changing. Urban family life had to be different from our rural farming family life. The family is moving from a laboring unit to a laboring individual. So instead of the whole family contributing to the economy, one member of the family would contribute to the economy. Um, the whole family couldn't necessarily get up and go to the office. So it went down to one individual, and that tended to be the husband and the father. So you see the, the rise of the sole breadwinner father slash husband who left the home and went into what might be called the public world of work. 
And so you see this, this change in spaces. So you have the public space of work, and then you have the space of home, the space of the domestic sphere. But very interestingly, in thinking about the dynamics in the home then, the home was meant to be the space presided by over the woman, over the wife and mother. And it was meant to be a space that was spiritual and virtuous, a place where her children could be reared in religious morality and a place where her husband could come home from work and expect to find rest and spiritual encouragement away from the chaotic worldly sphere. Stepping to the side really quick, the husband leaving home was new, just as this division of home life and work life, and that helped give rise to a new emotion. So nostalgia became this new, or at least this revised sentiment in which somebody would think about and long for their home and their family. And as you can imagine, this was especially important for men who were expected to do this on a daily basis when they went to work. And so this longing would take place in the imagination as one might imagine the ideal situation of returning to a happy home with your wife and family waiting for you to return. But this idea of nostalgia was also really importantly linked to childhood. So you have the man who's supposed to go work, the woman who's supposed to take care of home. Where does that put kids? You're moving from this era in which children were seen as many adults contributing to the household economy into, in the middle class at least, into an arena in which children were seen as something slightly more distinct from adulthood and therefore deserving their own attention in this distinction. Two things that are often brought up about children in the 1800s is that they lived longer and hand in hand with that, families had fewer kids. These physical changes helped foster a new view of childhood, a new understanding that had a large emotional component. This idea of kids being little adults, it's not new. We've been around for hundreds of years. So, so why now? Why care about children all of a sudden? That has to do with this new shift in romanticism and in the romantic views of childhood. I mean, just to say what romanticism is more generally, I mean, it has to do with the emphasis on feelings, an emphasis on individualism and perhaps self-discovery, an emphasis on nature. So in this era, you have new ideas of childhood coming into the fore. And as I noted, some have argued that childhood for the first time became a distinct category in this era. And others have suggested that maybe childhood didn't become distinct, but the ideals of childhood, which are equated with innocence, became distinct. So almost like a veneration of childhood. I mentioned this before, but these changes in life and society, they weren't evenly distributed. In fact, many of the people who benefited the most from this transition fell into a new socioeconomic grouping. I touched on them earlier. It was called the middle class. So what historians tend to be talking about is this new group, or at least a, a newly identifiable group, which is linked with the Industrial Revolution and linked with capitalism. Money is what some historians have called the primary necessity. Like most of the babies here, this one, Theodore Eastwood by name, has an ascribed status of middle class. His father is Joseph Eastwood, high school educated and a white collar worker in the Ames factory. He has a steady, skillful job and is comfortably off. The mortgage on his house is on its way to being paid. And someday, it undoubtedly will be. 
And the second important thing is the importance of religion. Now, when we consider the way Christmas changes from a raucous party to a family room gathering during this time period, we're looking at generally a shift in the middle class, a category of people who now had money and means as well as a developed social code. In the mid-18th century, you have the rise of evangelicalism, and that's the case in Britain and in America, in fact. And these feelings that are arising and popularizing in evangelicalism were combining with these enlightenment feelings. So enlightenment feelings had to do with these sensibilities where you would have humanitarian feelings about human progress, humanitarianism, and human rights. So these combined with sort of these religious sentiments and produced middle-class morality and middle-class respectability. And so this was a response to the aristocracy, because the aristocracy was renowned in the 18th century for being marked by debauchery, lasciviousness, excess, and luxury, all of these things considered sin. And it was in contrast to the working class, who many middle class perceived as being indolent. And so you have the middle class that's in, in the middle of these two groups being marked by these religious sensibilities, these religious feelings and religious respectability and morality, which they were trying to spread among the other groups. Okay, middle class. Back to the question of what is a Calthumpian band? The ultimate decider would be this new class of people who developed a morality that reflected a new domestic life, aspiring to be godly and productive. So the existing celebrations like Calthumpian bands with sailing, even Belschnickel, they no longer reflected the lifestyle of the time, or at least the direction which the moralities and sensibilities of society were moving. For Christmas to continue, we had to find a holiday that better suited the more domestic, family-centric, and emotional leanings. And we start to find them in a bunch of lies. lies. Lies told by someone now associated with Halloween for stories like The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It was Washington Irving that gave us some of the first building blocks of our new Christmas. As far as 19th century Christmas liars go, Washington Irving was in a class unto himself. He burst onto the scene with his first book, A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty by Diedrich Knickerbocker. It's most commonly known as the Knickerbocker History. The book was a satire of the history of New York. What stands out the most now, though, is that it included some new details about St. Nicholas, which would become definitive characteristics for our yet-to-be-formed gift-giving saint. And lo, the good St. Nicholas came riding over the tops of the trees, in that self-same wagon wherein he brings his yearly presents to children. Irving created the first drafts of what would be Santa's sleigh, made his pipe magical, and gives us the finger-to-the-nose wink. But this was just the start of Irving's commitment to St. Nicholas. He was a member of the St. Nicholas Society of New York. It was a group of people who were also less than worried about historical accuracy. So what this group did was, in the multicultural, busy, industrialized world of New York, they looked back at the supposed agrarian, calm Dutch times, and they made up all of these customs. And we know they're made up. That there's no doubt about it. You know, they, they talk about St. Nicholas as the patron saint of New Amsterdam. Well, that's fine and good, except, of course, um, the Dutch Reformed Church, who ran New Amsterdam, was Protestant and they had no saints. Uh, the timelines are all wrong. Everything's wrong. I mean, if you actually look at it as history, it's made up. But it worked really well at the beginning of the 19th century in New York. 
There's actually been a claim that this society brought St. Nicholas to New York. Now, whether that's true or not, they did make a concerted effort over a series of years to make St. Nicholas a major player in New York, attempting to make him the patron saint of New York City, which ultimately failed. But these two huge things, creating Sansa's characteristics and giving St. Nicholas a home in New York, they don't amount to the biggest impression that Washington Irving had on re-envisioning our holiday. In a world of romanticism and nostalgia, Irving gave us something to look back on fondly. It was an anchor point for today's Christmas. And it was also another book of exaggerations. This time he said it in the English countryside during Christmas. The sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon. There is nothing in England that exercises a more delightful spell over my imagination than the lingerings of the holiday customs and rural games of former times. He spent a little bit of time in England and he wrote a series of linked sketches in which, in some of them, he depicted a Yorkshire squire who was having what he described as a real North of England Christmas. It seemed to throw open every door and unlock every heart. It brought the peasant and the peer together and blended all ranks in one warm, generous flow of joy and kindness. Again, it's fiction. It's entirely made up. The people who read it in England at the time knew it was made up, knew that this did not happen. He gathered up scraps of traditions he made up other ones. He painted this picture, as with his New York Dutch thing, of going back to an older agrarian rural holiday. Heart calleth unto heart, and we draw our pleasures from the deep wells of living kindness. Thinking of authors and books today gives the wrong impression of Irving's impact on the culture of the time. His Knickerbocker history was successful and widely read both in America and Europe, putting him on his way to becoming the first American to make a living solely as a writer. His sketchbook eclipsed all his previous successes, making him the first American author to garner acclaim in Europe. The Christmases he created were read and loved everywhere. There's actually still a dinner held in Yosemite each year in honor of the English countryside from Sketchbook. I could keep praising Washington Irving, and at some point, it might become confusing as to whether his stories actually created our Christmas. But we know that people have written about Christmas before this. So why does Irving get mentioned and not the author of the early Christmas gift books that captured stories of the holidays 30 years prior? Is what Washington Irving's doing here very different than what was already going on with antiquarianism and the way people were looking back? He just did it in a very popular way? Like, would you say maybe his largest contribution was just the popularity of something that was kind of already happening in society? Or is this something, is he doing something new here? You know, I think one of the things you have to remember when people say things like Dickens invented Christmas or Washington Irving invented Christmas or, or whatever, um, they're tapping into the zeitgeist. If what they were doing had been totally unfamiliar, people would not have been that interested. They were hugely successful because they were painting a picture of things people sort of recognized so that they could pick up small elements and say, oh, yes, that's what used to happen. So whether it's Washington Irving's sort of fake 18th century Yorkshire Christmas or 
15 years later when Dickens writes a Pickwick Papers, the Pickwick Papers, and he has this Christmas in Dingley Dell, they are elaborating, they're embroidering on the stories of Christmas that people know. And with that, they are creating new elements. So here we are, just where the snowball of Christmas can start to roll again. All the different aspects of the holiday that we now love are falling into place. We have the building momentum of a kid-centered home life. Factories pushing us towards a world of things, money. And on top of all of that, we know what we're wanting in our Christmas. And the writers and the artists of the time are beginning to help us shape it while building onto it. We are only years away from Christmas taking off like reindeer racing around the globe. And that's all next, in the conclusion of The Holiday the World Needed. Creating Christmas was produced this week by Oversaturated Inc. and me. I am incredibly grateful for the help I received putting this story together. I'm so thankful that so many people have been willing to lend their time and voice. Thanks to Bruce Forbes and his book, Christmas, A Candid Story. Thank you, Judith Flanders, who set aside time to talk even as her house was being remodeled. And for her book, Christmas, A Biography. And a massive thank you and all my gratitude to Angela Platt. I found her research on her blog, The Beaten Ideal, and it is a great start to understanding life during this time. Check out our website, creatingchristmaspodcast.com, for links to all the work featured in today's show and cool episode extras. And if you have time, rate and review us. I hear for every review, an angel gets its wings. I'm Bob Christian, and until next time, stay jolly.